Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. There's a lot to talk about, and it's heart disturbing. It's heartbreaking to see what's going on in Ukraine. The stories, the photographs, the um, the accounts, 900 more people, 900 more bodies found in the Kiev region. And today we hear that there's been missile strikes in that particular area of Ukraine near the capital city, also near um, Lviv on the Polish border. As the Russians, I'm gathering here, are trying to make a point because their Black Sea Fleet warship flagship was sunk by Ukraine missiles. And we'll be talking to Vice Admiral Mark Norman about that a little later on. That particular warship, if you haven't heard this, many of you have, most of you probably have, that particular warship is the one that threatened the Ukraine border guards on what is known as Snake Island. And they told the warship and its crew what they could do. And then the ship opened up on them, and I would imagine that particular ship has been uh, the target of the Ukraine military since that particular time. So that ship has sunk. Alexander Sherba is the former Ukraine ambassador to Austria. He was also an ambassador at large for Ukraine. His book is Ukraine versus Darkness, Undiplomatic Thoughts. Ambassador, thank you for coming back on the program. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. What is your understanding of what has happened and what is going on in Ukraine now with the Russians um, engaging in missile strikes on Kyiv, on Kyiv rather, on Kharkiv, and also on Lviv? What What do you know that's going on, sir? Well, it's uh, the situation is uh, the same as a week and two weeks ago. Uh, Russians can't win uh, face-to-face. They are losing this war on the battlefield. So they are uh, choosing, the safe, choosing the safe tactic of, you know, uh, firing uh, missiles from afar, destroying uh, our uh, cities, homes, uh, uh, taking it out on civilians. Um, so this is the the most disgusting, you know, military tactic one could, could imagine. Uh, but this is what's going on, especially in the last couple of days, of course, ever since uh, we uh, hit that uh, uh, warship in uh, uh, Black Sea. That's the, it it, it um, got tougher since then. Yeah. There's no uh, question in your mind, I imagine, that at the very least, it's uh, war crimes that are being committed, and more than likely, and uh, President Biden used the word genocide, that word applies. Uh, well, if you look at uh, the uh, small uh, Kiev suburb, Bucha, where uh, practically all uh, male uh, civilians in the town from the age of 16 to 60 uh, were slaughtered, uh, it's the only word uh, that uh, that would come to mind. And uh, seeing all the atrocities uh, across the country, uh, killing civilians, uh, raping women, uh, looting, uh, I don't know, just, just uh, uh, as President Zelensky said uh, in his uh, United Nations address, there is not a single 
uh, crime, apparently, that they didn't commit uh, in Bucha, and for what? Against whom? Against Ukrainians who just want to be a part of Ukraine. And this is like that uh, all over the country, uh, from uh, east uh, to south. Uh, uh, also, we have very, very explicit uh, confirmation uh, of uh, Putin's tactic and of Russian tactic in form of uh, articles that get published in their central media where uh, they openly speak about Ukraine, Ukraine's collective guilt towards Russia and uh, uh, that Ukraine is in need of collective punishment. So it is genocide. Yeah, when you then see what the West is doing, what Western nations are doing, including our country, Canada, uh, providing uh, ammunition, providing weaponry, but uh, you need more than that. What's what's your response? What's your message to the governments of the West? Is it the same as it's been since the beginning, Ambassador? We need a no-fly zone. We need uh, we we need you to cover the skies for us so we can do our our business on the ground. Well, people don't talk about no-fly zone anymore because it's obvious that uh, the NATO countries are not that brave. Um, uh, but uh, other than that, we are immensely grateful for the help that we are receiving from the West, including your country. Uh, just the problem is sometimes, I, as I spoke to one of my colleagues in the government recently, and he said, you know what, um, we act like a country at war and we decide like a country of war. They are not at war. And they decide like country, like countries not at war, uh, meaning lots of bureaucracy, lots of procrastination. Uh, I'm not talking about Canada right now, but uh, when I'm looking at Germany, a country that is very, very close to me, it's just sad how, uh, because of all this procrastination, uh, not only Ukraine is getting killed, but uh, Germany's reputation is getting killed. Europe's reputation is getting killed. So there is so much at stake here. And um, Ukraine, uh, I think, is winning this war. Uh, at least it's not losing. I cannot say the same about Europe, unfortunately. Yeah, we spoke last hour about the situation with Germany and how Germany is shutting down its nuclear plants, but seems quite pleased to uh, continue to buy massive amounts of natural gas from Putin and signed a, a, a very large contract with Putin just before the invasion of Ukraine. Um, and and Europe really and you're correct. Europe has some issues to uh, to resolve, and uh, it's not certainly not helping their reputation at all. Here's a question for you: How long can the Ukraine military hold out alone, even if they're much better equipped? How, how much longer can they can your military hold out? Uh, well, it's a tricky question. Uh, I uh, I think indefinitely because uh, because uh, we are killing much more uh, Russians than they are, they are killing Ukrainians, because we are much more motivated than they are. Uh, of course, uh, if we get uh, the necessary equipment as soon as possible, then uh, Putin will get a feeling, uh, inevitably will get a feeling that uh, he would, uh, he would uh, be losing this war, and then it would be additional pressure uh, on him to really uh, start serious negotiations and not what's, what, what has been going on until now. And that would be uh, uh, the moment when 
uh, diplomacy again would have a chance and peace would again would have a chance. Uh, and it would be a very clear sign uh, uh, that this happened if uh, Putin calls Macron and not the other way around. But about Ukrainian army, the resilience about Ukrainians and Ukrainian army, there, there is much talk uh, on Russian TV right now about, you know, uh, how we can just throw one bomb and solve, solve this whole question, as, as, as they uh, put it. Um, uh, meaning uh, the nuclear option, so, so they just nuke Ukraine. Uh, but uh, quite frankly, uh, people, people it, it makes the situation ten, more tense in Ukraine. But even then, just it will, will make only more obvious the truth. Uh, and the truth is that uh, the only uh, option and the only way for Russia to conquer Ukraine is to kill Ukraine, to kill all Ukrainians, because nobody wants uh, Russia there. He, ha- he doesn't have any collaborators. He ha- doesn't have any spirit uh, in favor of him, even at uh, um, you know, 5 or 10% of population. So I hope that um, once Ukraine starts kicking out uh, Russians from our territory, um, it, uh, the tables will turn. TruthHounds is a team of experienced human rights professionals who've been working on documenting war crimes and crimes against humanity since 2014, and uh, particularly now the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Dmitry Koval is a TruthHounds investigator and international law expert. He joins us on The Roy Green Show. Mr. Koval, thank you very much for taking the time, sir. Thank you for your invitation. Would you uh, share with us, please, what it is uh, that you're investigating now? And from what I understand, there's one community not far from uh, Kiev, Borodyanka, where you found some terrible evidence of uh, Russian war crimes and genocidal attacks. Tell us about that, please. Um, Actually, we uh, investigate uh, crimes all around Ukraine, not only uh, in the outskirts of Kiev, but also in other regions, in the south, in the east, and in the north. Uh, but yeah, uh, since um, week and half uh, we ago, we started to uh, investigate crimes that were committed uh, in the northern uh, cities, satellites of Kyiv. Uh, and it's not only one city. Bucha is the most prominent, probably, media example of the cities under uh, that were under Russian occupation. But there are more, like Motijin, Hostomel, uh, and uh, many others that uh, were liberated just recently and Truscounts got access to uh, those cities. Uh, what we saw there is the commission of um, many different types of war crimes, uh, including uh, rape, uh, sexual violence, torture, um, and uh, killing of civilians, and many others. Uh, so probably um, the, the scope and the quantity of those crimes gives uh, also some ground to believe that not only war crimes were committed there, but also crimes against against humanity. Uh, this type of crime um, should be committed in a large, uh, should be large scale and widespread in order to to uh, to be qualified as a crime against humanity and unfortunately we see those patterns there uh, near kiev 
What do you do with the information that you have? I know that you uh, are personally engaged with the International Criminal Court, but what do you do with the information? Because I would imagine if the world saw what you have, it would be, it would really motivate many people to speak out, maybe more so than they're doing now. Yeah, we, we use it uh, for informing uh, people, of course. So we publish uh, reports, thematic reports on the findings, uh, and we share those reports with international organizations and with media. And so the media can um, take the lead and uh, speak more about the events uh, over there. Um, but we also uh, share this information with an international criminal court, as you mentioned. Uh, we prepare uh, so-called submissions to the International Criminal Court, telling uh, the court uh, what we have documented, uh, who we spoke about the crimes committed, etc. And we also share the information, if the witnesses and victims allows us, of course, we share the information with national prosecutors and also with some foreign prosecutors, because uh, the types of crimes that were committed in Ukraine, I mean war crimes and crimes against humanity, are international crimes. Uh, they are con- in the concern of the whole international community. And many states, uh, even if they don't have any um, connection to the crimes, to the perpetrators, they can investigate those types of crimes. Uh, that is why we share the information not only with the Ukrainian national prosecutors, but also with some um, prosecutors abroad, with some prosecutors in European countries. Do you believe that it's reasonable to expect that uh, people who are significantly responsible for the atrocities that are being committed against the people of Ukraine will eventually stand before judges at the International Criminal Court. Do you think it's reasonable to expect that? I mean, I hope it is, but what do you think? Uh, I, I think at least some of them uh, yeah, will stand uh, in the ICC as uh, perpetrators, as uh, uh, those who are accused of committing uh, those terrible crimes. Uh, but, yeah, we uh, try to manage our expectations and to, uh, we, we understand that it won't be easy to get those people to the International Criminal Court. But even the uh, arrest warrant would mean a lot for the victims and uh, their families um, because that would uh, kind of signal for them that international uh, community is not indifferent, that it cares, and uh, that means a lot for, for, for justice. I uh, was reading an account on uh, BBC, the British broadcaster, where you're quoted as saying, I'm just paraphrasing you now, but that in one community where you were, the Russians were very much aware, the Russian military that were there, were very much aware there was no Ukrainian military presence. They knew it was just men, women, and children, or women and children, civilian population, and yet they opened fire with everything they had and destroyed everything and just wantonly just murdered people. Did I Do I understand that correctly? Yes, absolutely. Unfortunately, what... Um uh, differentiate this conflict from other conflicts, other armed conflicts where civilians uh, die, is that in many cases, uh, in many situations, uh, we, um, with certain degree of uh, certainty, can uh, say that Russian military or Russian army opened fire against uh, civilians, knowing that those people are civilians. And also, they uh, quite frequently bombed and uh, used artillery fire to um, to actually target civilian objects 
and to kill civilians instead of military, instead of achieving some military goals, military ends. Canadian Civil Liberties Association, now get this, and 14 other civil liberties groups are calling for a robust inquiry into why the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, introduced the Emergencies Act. The CCLA writes in part, and I quote, the people of Canada deserve to hear from their officials about why they took the steps they did. They deserve accountability, and Canadians are owed the truth as to why their civil liberties were suspended, end quote. Kara Zwiebel is the Director of Fundamental Freedom for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Zwiebel, thank you very much. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to talk to you again. So, now, the federal government is required to hold an inquiry into the declaration of the Emergencies Act. Can you tell us what the process is by the book? Um, so, under the statute, they're uh, within 60 days of the emergency proclamation being revoked. They're supposed to uh, appoint an inquiry. Uh, but there's not really a lot of detail beyond that in the act about what, what needs to be done. And so one of the reasons that we got together with other groups um, and called for you know, a, a really meaningful and robust inquiry is because there there is the potential that they could just sort of do something very superficial to tick the box and say that they've done it. And um, we, we don't want that, obviously. And we've seen that uh, when they've had parliamentary committees, and not necessarily anyone in particular, although I'm thinking about the one uh, where Jody Wilson-Raybould and her situation was featured. So the government, or whichever the government of the day happens to be, and if they have the majority of the people on the committee, and if they're the government they do, they can in fact uh, structure and direct where the conversation, where the testimony goes. That's a concern for you, I would imagine. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, the Act does, you know, require also this parliamentary review committee, which is already formed and already started its work. So this is supposed to be something different. And our, you know, our our primary sort of uh, message here was make sure that this is something truly independent. Um, you know, ideally, I think we'd want the not not just cabinet to sort of make a decision about who is heading up this inquiry, but for there to be consultation with other parties. Um, and to give the person or people that are leading the inquiry the powers that um, that they would have under the Inquiries Act, which is the power to compel witnesses, the power to compel documents, um, so that we really, you know, we give whoever's leading this the tools that they need to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, we have to remember, I mean, this has to be front and center in people's memory, and when we think about this inquiry, our civil liberties were arbitrarily suspended. Yeah, I mean, there was there was an order that affected every person in the country, you know, from from coast to coast to coast, um, that restricted the the freedom to peacefully assemble, that restricted um, you know other charter rights, and that gave the government powers to um, to freeze assets and and do all kinds of things without the, the sort of due process protections that are normally in place. So um, we need to understand um, first of all whether you know whether it was justified for the government to go in and declare the emergency, but also um, how did we get to the point where the government decided that was necessary and um, how do we make sure we don't get to that point again? Mm -hmm. So uh, just quoting again from the news release from the CCLA, let's be crystal clear, an inquiry that does not include the sworn testimony of major players involved and the production of documents is a sham, end quote. Do you want the Prime Minister question directly? Um, 
I mean, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't discount that possibility. I, I think that um, there's obviously going to be, you know, discussions about what, what is covered here by, by cabinet confidences. But um, I think that the person that's responsible for, for leading this inquiry or the, or the people, if it's a, if it's a panel, um, you know, they, they need to hear from whoever they think is required to get to the bottom of it. And I, I, I mean, it's quite, quite possible that the prime minister would be one of those people. So you can manage who's going to be testifying at an inquiry, but you cannot manage, if you present them, documentation without redaction. And in this particular instance, if you receive documentation with significant redaction, that would be a major concern. So can you give us an idea, a sense of what kind of documentation you'd like to see presented at the inquiry? Yeah, I mean, I think probably um, it, it would be important to understand the, the communication and correspondence between various levels of government, you know, between um, particularly a lot of the blockade activity was was um, sort of concentrated in Ontario, between the Ontario provincial government and the federal government, and possibly, you know, the Ottawa municipal government. I think um, that kind of correspondence is probably significant. Um you know, the, the government is was required when they declared uh, the, the emergency to, to put a justification forward to, um, to to the House of Commons and Senate. And um, and they did that. And, you know, I guess the question is, is there is there more? Is there something that wasn't included in, the, in the, those documents that would be um, would be relevant to see? So I, I think that those are some of the pieces that um, this inquiry would need to get to the bottom of. Now, I agree with you 100% because, again, as you point out, the civil rights of Canadians were compromised at the very least. So if this inquiry does not move forward in a truly investigative manner, what's the danger to Canadians as far as our civil civil liberties are concerned? I mean, I, I think, first of all, if, you know, if the cost of doing this doesn't seem sufficiently high to the government, then... Um, there is obviously a concern that they'll do it again, and um, you know that that maybe they'll do it um, again without without people may have dif- different views about whether it was justified this time around. Um, but but you know the the concern obvi- obviously is that if you open the door and then future governments walk right through it uh, whenever they think it's necessary to. Um, I think also there was a lot of trust. Um, you know the the whole lead up to the declaration of this of the emergency and um, and then the fact of its declaration. Um, I think we saw a lot of people losing um, trust in their government institutions. You know, being sort of confused about how how this could be allowed to happen and and how we could get to this place. And I think the inquiry is an opportunity to try and rebuild some of that trust. And so I, I would hope that the government doesn't squander that opportunity. I think that. Um, it, you know, if we don't have a meaningful inquiry, then, um, you know, some of the people that already feel pretty uh, disaffected and, um, you know, pretty sort of um, disillusioned about, about the state of things um, will we'll become further entrenched. If we have something that does, you know, that is truly transparent, that appears to be open and, and independent, I think there's a possibility at least of, of you know, bringing people back to a place where they have some some sense of trust in their government. They have the responsibility to provide the answers as to why they, in fact, 
place the Emergencies Act, uh, put the Emergencies Act in place, activated it. Um, have you received any signals at all from the government about how much cooperation they're expected to or, or willing to provide? Um, no, I mean, with the inquiry, we don't know anything about, about their plans. I think the, the deadline for them to appoint the inquiry is, is coming up fairly soon. So um, I would imagine there will be an announcement in the next week or two. Um, but but we, we don't have any information. I know that um, a, a separate piece of this is, is that the, the CCLA and a, a number of other groups have also initiated um, an application in federal court for judicial review of the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. Um, and so that's a different process, um, and one that we, we think is also very important. Um, and in that case, the government has, um, at least so far, has, um, you know, tried to, to tell the court they'd like to schedule something to make an argument that, that it's moot. So, um, basically that because the emergency is over, um, there isn't a need for, for this to be heard in court. And, um, so far the court has said you can make those arguments. When the, when the case is heard, it's not it's not an issue that they're um, going to hear in advance. Um, and so they're telling the government, I think, you know, prepare your your case. This is a case that you are going to have to answer. Is there any way that our listeners can engage with the CCLA and, and uh, the other organizations that are demanding a robust inquiry? Absolutely. Um, you know, you can um, certainly visit our website, CCLA.org, and uh and, and sign up to get updates. We, of course, uh, we rely on donations, so that's always very welcome. Um, all of the groups that are involved in this, um, you know, have an online presence. And um, and I think as, as things move forward, we'll be putting out more updates uh, about, you know, what what role we'll be playing in whatever this inquiry looks like. And so um, people should stay tuned for that. And, and um, there may be opportunities to, to hear from people about uh about how they're affected. That's the other thing that we would hope an inquiry would do is, is hear from Canadians about, um, you know, about their experience during the lead up to and um, the aftermath of the, the declaration. So the Moskva was struck by missiles, Ukrainian missiles. We're now hearing from the U- U.S. military. They're more than less confirming that. And it sank two days ago. So it is the, or was the flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. And when a flagship is sunk, that's a big deal. Let's talk to someone who knows all about this uh, reality, Vice Admiral Mark Norman, uh, former commander of the Royal Canadian Navy and uh, former Vice Chief of Defense Staff. Admiral Norman, thank you very much uh, for the time. F- first of all, that ship, the the, uh, the Moskva, would have been on the uh, Ukrainian primary target list, Correct. Yeah, it certainly would have been. Uh, the Black Sea Fleet operating about 30 ships at the moment uh, and a number of submarines has been. The fleet in general has basically been um, harassing um, the south coast of Ukraine and providing a significant distraction. Uh, on the threat, basically, that they would launch some sort of amphibious invasion. So they've been, they've been patrolling those waters for quite some time. Um, and denying access uh, to uh, to the Ukrainian port of Odessa in particular. Yeah. Does it surprise you that the Ukrainians were able to, uh, to, to take that ship out? Uh, I would have imagined that as a flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, it would have been extraordinarily well protected. Yeah, it, it's, a good, it's a good point. Uh, something clearly went wrong um, at the Russian end uh, of this uh, exchange, and... Um, I think 
you know, the technology of the uh, domestically produced Ukrainian Neptune missile is uh, fairly good, uh, from from what I understand. So it is a reasonably uh, capable weapon system. But to your point, um, to have a 12,000-ton um, cruiser with a crew of 500, not only disabled, but in this case destroyed and sunk um, by the Ukrainian uh, weapon system is, is a significant failing on the part of the Russians and, and therefore a significant victory on the part of the Ukrainians. Yeah, Mr. Putin has been in the habit of the last little while, last days of uh, placing members of his military and intelligence community who didn't serve him well, in his view, in prison. So I imagine there's going to be some uh, folks from the Black Sea Fleet joining them. But what's your sense, Admiral Norman, of the impact on the morale of the Russian Navy losing that flagship? Yeah, so I think operationally the impact will actually be fairly minimal. Um, There are a lot of other ships uh, in, in the Black Sea Fleet uh, as I indicated, I, I'm, I'm not sure that they were really serious about an amphibious invasion. They're probably preparing for one, but it, the, the, the Moscow would have only provided a supporting capability, and the command and control capability can be transferred to another vessel. I think the real significance of this, uh, it, it comes in, in two dimensions. The first dimension is the um, psychological and morale impacts on both sides. Um, that I think your viewers will intuitively understand. Uh, this is a huge victory for the Ukrainians, and it's a huge failure for the Russians. And I think um, more uh, strategically, as we look at this, this is another example uh, in a series of examples of the Russians making, um, I can only call them tactical blunders that are contributing to their own uh, failure, and they're playing right into the hands of the Ukrainians. And so this... Um, is akin to the kind of uh, foolish use of uh, tanks that we've seen in the urban settings where they play right into the handheld weapon systems uh, that the Ukrainians are using to basically um, obliterate uh, the Russian tanks on a, on a recurring basis. And this is the same kind of thing. It just happened at sea, and uh, the stakes are bigger because you're dealing with 500 people in a, in a single ship. But that's conceptually where, where my head is. So the Ukraine military has handled itself uh, exceedingly well, but they can't be expected, I would imagine, Admiral Norman, to hold out against Russia indefinitely, even if the West increases the sophistication of the armament it's providing to Ukraine. Personnel need to be trained to optimize the potential of each of these weapon systems. What's your sense of uh, how long the Ukrainians can continue to carry the fight and do as well as they have been against the Russian military? Well, I think they're they're more capable than initially I even and others have imagined. Um, they uh, certainly are showing not just an incredible tenacity, but they're showing um, also great skill and great depth in terms of um, their ability to push the Russians back. I think to your point, however, uh, and and we've discussed this before, you you, you can't under um, estimate the the significance of the Russian mass. Um, and they're now in the process, as we understand it, based on the reporting, they're basically reorienting their forces, resupplying, uh, probably uh, re- refreshing uh, their, their 
their units with uh, with new troops um, in preparation for a major push. I think if if the Russians are are more concentrated in their in their efforts, it will be harder for the Ukrainians. But I think that they're going to continue to push them back. And your other point is, but it's really important that the West continue to provide them the kind of um, equipment and support that they've been getting. How long? I honestly couldn't say. But you know, a lot of people were guessing this was going to be over in the in a, in a few days or a few weeks, and we're now pushing into week six. I think this is going to go on for months longer. Yeah. Uh, we have about a minute, Admiral Norman. It must be really disturbing to you as a professional military commander to know what the Russian military is doing to civilians in Ukraine. Yeah, it's it's brutal. It's immoral. It's criminal. Uh, it's it, it goes right to the heart of uh, the ethics of armed conflict. Um, and uh, I mean, notwithstanding the incredible impacts on the ground that we're seeing and, and the lives of Ukrainians that are being destroyed, um, my hope, uh, along with a whole bunch of people, is that uh, the key actors in this will be held to account uh, at some point in the future. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.